It was about evangelism. Is it, was it Dave Bain? Was that Dave his first? I can't remember. Mark Bain. Mark Bain, who was the guy in the Church of the Nazarene who sits in the big office in Kansas City, he's kind of the evangelism guy, was there to speak to us. And woo-wee! You know, I felt like I got slapped around a little bit. And he is one of those people that definitely has the gift of evangelism. But you know what? We're all called to be evangelists in some way. We're all called to share the love of Jesus, to tell what Jesus has done in our lives, to be witnesses for him. And so I'm going to focus on kind of this broader topic of evangelism over the next few weeks till we get to Thanksgiving and then into Advent. <clears throat> and what I'm going to share today, I don't know, in my mind may be a little hard-hitting, but what it has to do with is the fact that we are called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, but we can undermine our witness. Um, we can hurt our witness through the way we live our lives sometimes. In other words, we'll go to share with somebody, but they really won't hear us because they've seen the way we live. And so the, I've titled my sermon today, Doing Your Say. You say, well, that's a, what? You've all heard the expression, do as I say, not as I do. All right? Well, that doesn't work in God's economy. <clears throat> Folks, God expects us to do our say. If we say we're followers of Jesus Christ, we better live in a way that expresses that. We, in other words, we have to walk our talk. Um, if I say I am a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, I had better act like one. <clears throat> now, I know, uh, well, let me, any, anybody here bat a thousand when it comes to this? I, okay? But listen, there, there should be a consistency in our lives that's apparent to people, and when it isn't, we need to deal with that with God and maybe the person that we've offended or caused to question our talk because our walk hasn't necessarily matched up to us to that. Someone has said there are a growing number of voices raised in criticism not of the faith of the church but of its life and practice. The way Christians, those who claim Christ, live in the world where they are. <clears throat> and folks, we are the church. When it says there are a growing number of voices raised in criticism, not of the faith of the church, but of its life and practice, we are the church. And we don't want to fit into that. We don't want them to question our life and practice. We want to live in a way that's consistent with our faith in Jesus Christ and the fact that we've been saved by grace. Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, and I'm going to need this this morning. Monday Morning Pulpits, a devotional by Chuck Swindoll. He writes, Two things bother me a lot when the subject of Christians and their work is mentioned. I'm going to tie this in in a few moments. First, how few are genuinely, genuinely happy with their jobs. Second, how frequently I hear about Christians who are poor workers on their jobs. Some employers have told me they prefer not to hire Christians. 
That's a good testimony. Wow, he says, that's quite an indictment. As I probe for reasons, here's what is said. These are actual statements I've heard. (coughs) These are now employers speaking about Christians that have worked or are working for them. Number one, they tend to be presumptuous. They take advantage of a Christian boss. The second thing, it's the old problem of attitude. I find them negative, critical, and resistant to change. Incompetence. It seems to me that the last several I've hired could not or would not do the job. They are preoccupied with other things, witnessing the church or whatever. And then finally, frankly, I can't trust them when I'm around. The last one I hired was just plain dishonest. Now these are people in the workplace who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. So Swindoll goes on, okay, so these may be exceptions. So this represents a very small minority. I'm still bothered. For every exception, there's a host of offenses and a lot of hard feelings created. In other words, a view of Christians. Because when a Christian lives that way, their reputation affects us all. It's like, you know, the, the television pastors who went down in flames. Okay? Did you know that <clears throat> it used to be that, that uh, ministers were one of the most respected people in our culture? Now we're down there with, and pardon me if someone is one of these, with used car salesmen. Okay? That's where ministers rank as far as our, our culture's respect for them. <clears throat> and it's been because of what well-known pastors or ministers have done. It's been, they've failed miserably, um, and it's been on the national news. Um, and, it, and it colors people's view of the ministry now. Well, the same thing happens with Christianity. People out there who claim to be Christians and yet don't live the life of a Christian get a bad reputation for Christianity. And others, we, I say, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, sure, I know what, do you, you know what I'm talking about. So Swindoll says, Show, um, a minority apple can still spoil a majority barrel if it's rotten. Show me a lazy, irritating Christian on the job, and I'll show you an office or store or customer or shop that isn't interested in his message. <clears throat> like it or not, the world watches us with the scrutiny of a seagull peering at a shrimp in shallow water. I wish I was, I wish I could come up with stuff like that. <clears throat> the believer at work is under constant surveillance. That's our number one occupational hazard. And when we speak of our Savior and the life He offers, everything we say is filtered through that which has been observed by others. And so, and this is on your outline today, Swindoll says, Right belief and right behavior go hand in hand. Right belief and right behavior go hand in hand. And then he goes on to say, it will help you do a super job if you will remember that there is no sacred, secular distinction in Scripture 
Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. That means your Monday through Friday employment is pure. It's sacred. Just as sacred as your Sunday activities. To the Christian, all life is sacred. Paul wasn't writing only to preachers when he expressed these immortal words. I therefore entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's Ephesians 1.4. So I want to speak today, not to the specific issue of a Christian's conduct just in the workplace, but, the, but to the idea behind what Swindoll is saying here. The way we live must be genuine and consistent enough that it is attractive to people and testifies to the authenticity of our faith. Or at least, or at least, does not turn them off or give them reason to reject Christianity. There are two, th- two things I have personally heard people say over the years that trouble me when I hear them, and they sound like this or something like this. Number one, If that's Christianity, I'm not interested. Number two, if so-and-so goes to your church, I'll never come. Ouch. We had a gentleman in our church that did lawn care. He did it for a living. Understandably, he did some business with one of the small engine repair shops in our town. Eventually, however, that shop told him to go elsewhere because he was so difficult, disagreeable, demanding, and temperamental that they didn't want his business anymore. What a horrible testimony. And how embarrassing to himself and the body of believers that he was a part of. Most non-believers, whether they don't know anything about the Bible or not, or whether or not they have ever darkened the door of a church, still have some kind of idea of what a follower of Jesus should act like. That's not to say that those expectations are accurate or that we should be controlled by them, but we should always be concerned about how our words, actions, and attitudes reflect on our claims of faith and salvation and the resulting effect on others. The bottom line is this. God's Word should always be the standard by which we measure our performance. But we must live it out in such a consistent way that there is a contagious authenticity in our lives that results in being credible witness to the faith and standards we claim. And so... Brings us to the scripture that Gail read for us this morning. Paul's talking about living our life in a certain way. And he read it, I believe, in the NIV. Let me read it to you in the New Living Translation. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. I, too, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Jesus Christ. 
You know what these verses say? The paraphrase would boil down to something like this. It's not about us. It's about others. It's not about us. It's about others. And I should be living my faith genuinely enough that I am worthy of imitation. Who? But that's exactly what Paul said. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm living enough of a Christ-like life that I am worthy of imitation. That's a high standard, isn't it? By the way, Paul has covered all the bases here. He's not talking merely of our influence on those outside the church, although that's a main concern in this message. He's also concerned about our influence within our own families and with fellow believers. He mentions Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. So this scripture is a call to live godly lives for the sake of those both inside and outside the church. We are not to cause anyone to stumble. We don't put barriers in the way of people coming to Jesus Christ. By the way, to stumble, when you talk about making someone stumble, and Paul uses that word, it's from the Greek meaning to, to stub your toe on or to trip up. And folks, sometimes... We cause people to stumble, to stub their toes on our own actions. And then we want to remove barriers. We must come to grips with the fact that sometimes the greatest barrier to someone coming to Jesus might be me and my behavior. People with a heart for God and a sincere desire to see unsaved people find Jesus can create barriers. They can be their own greatest hindrance to effective witnessing. So, does removing barriers mean that I have to remove me? (laughs) That I've got to be taken out some way? I remember, uh, we kind of touched on this subject in Sunday school this morning. remember having a discussion with someone who has a little different theological point of view than I do. And we're talking this morning about, you know, does God hold us in an open hand and we have a choice to walk away from Him if we want or does He hold us in a closed hand so we come to Jesus and basically it doesn't matter how we live after that. He's still got us. And this person said, well, here's what happens. If you come to God and you're living that way, God will just take you out. You know, (laughs) ashes. I don't know that I've ever seen that happen, but... No, no, that's probably not going to happen. And if you mess up and if you live in a way that's inconsistent with your claims for Jesus, well, you'll have to answer for that someday. And it's going to impact people that hopefully you've been trying to influence to Jesus in a way that you didn't want to impact them. So, It doesn't mean that we'll be taken out, but it does mean that we have to live our faith in a genuine and consistent way. It means a change in behavior and attitude out there where it really counts. You know, 
we get upset with people who may be cantankerous or critical or just plain hard to get along with in the church. But think about it. That's probably how they are the rest of the week, too. They're not that fun to be around on Sunday, and they're probably not that fun to be around the rest of the time either. At least they're consistent. It's when we are sweet, loving, caring, compassionate, agreeable, pleasant, and all those other things we think Christians should be on Sunday, but unpredictable the rest of the time that creates the greatest barriers. Sunday Christians, that's the the terminology we use. And folks, when that kind of stuff happens, we have put barriers in the way of people that the Holy Spirit is trying to move toward Jesus. We have caused them to stumble. So those barriers have to be removed. And that happens when we are honest with God and ourselves and quit making excuses for inexcusable behavior. It requires the, Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit to produce in us Christ-likeness. And it sounds a lot like this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control. I don't know if that's listed last because that's one of the toughest ones. But boy, is it required. In the ESV, English Standard Version... The scripture that Dale read sounds like this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. I like that word advantage here. When we live a Christ-like life in the world, we are creating advantage for others. Benefit, gain, or interest. When we live a godly life in front of others, we create advantage for them because hopefully it creates an interest in them regarding the things of God and why we live and do and say the things we do. Godly behavior, this is the next... Um, point on your outline, godly behavior creates advantage for others in my sphere of influence. It creates advantage. Hopefully it, it creates benefit for them. It creates interest. It, it moves them toward Jesus instead of away from Him. First Peter 2.12 Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. In the world. Titus chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works 
and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. You know, uh, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and I probably told you about this guy before, is Daniel. Remember, um, Daniel had been elevated to this high position of authority in the Babylonian kingdom. And the, uh, the Babylonian guys are looking at this Jewish boy and saying, wait a minute. And so they decide to come up with a plan to undermine him. I mean, they want to take him down. And so they vetted him. You know what that is, don't you? We vet people who run for office. We vet them. We, we scour their background and we look for dirt. Right? Isn't that the point? Okay, we want to bring something to the surface that maybe nobody's known about before that will uh, uh, you know, undermine their, their run for office. So they vetted Daniel. Squeaky clean. No dirt. So you know what they did? They made a law that would get him in trouble for doing the right thing. People can only pray to you, O king, and if anybody prays to anyone else, into the den of lions they go. And they caught Daniel doing the right thing, because he kept praying to his God. And God honored that, and he was thrown in the lion's den, and the lions didn't touch him. And it says, when, then when the guys who came to the king and wanted this to happen, the king was pretty upset about this. He really didn't want to throw Daniel in. He'd made a stupid decision. He waited all night. He couldn't sleep. When Daniel was safe, he was happy. But the guys who talked him into making this law, they and their families were thrown into the den. It says they didn't even hit the floor for the, before the lions were on them. I'm going to say, I bet they regretted that, but I'm not sure they had time to regret it. But anyway. So, here's the advantage that we are able to create in others' lives. They see something in us who live consistently as a follower of Jesus Christ should. They see something in you that puzzles, amazes, or draws them, and they want to know, how do you do that? You have moved them then a little closer to Jesus than they were before because you have shown them a better way. That's advantage in their lives. Anytime someone is moving toward Jesus, that's an advantage. Paul says that he tries to please everybody or tries to please everyone in everything he does. Does that mean he's a suck-up or a doormat? He says, I try to, to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. Now, he's not talking about here about, about letting people, you know, get down on the floor and I'll wipe my on you. But he is saying that my concern for your welfare rises above my concern for my own welfare. Listen, if I have to give up something for your sake, that's okay. I'll do that. Read Corinthians sometimes. Paul deals with that quite effectively there. You know, we talk about freedom in Christ. And very often that means I am free to do certain things that maybe you cannot. That's kind of how we view freedom in Christ. 
But I think freedom in Christ is a two-sided coin. Freedom in Christ also means I am free to give up something for your sake and not gripe about it and say, you big baby, you wouldn't have to do that if you weren't such a weak Christian. Right? Isn't there a freedom in being able to give up something without... There's freedom there too. Amen? He says, I try... I try. I try to do this. Now, Paul isn't saying, I always succeed, but he says, I try. Because, listen, we live in a world where sometimes, in spite of your best efforts, people won't be pleased with your efforts. Listen to Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, If it is possible, as far as, far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you. So you do everything in your power to live at peace with everyone. But guess what? There will be some people who, in spite of your best efforts, will not want to live at peace with you. See what I'm saying? But we still try. We still try. And then... Paul goes on, he says this crazy stuff in Romans chapter 12. Really crazy stuff. We are told to do good to those who hate us. Not to repay evil for evil and to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Come on, Paul. But see, that is his concern for the welfare of others. That seemed to be Jesus' concern too. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, saith the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good by living a Christ-like life. (laughs) By the way, if you give your enemy something to drink when he's thirsty and something to eat when he's hungry with the goal of putting burning coals on his head, that's probably not the right motivation. (laughs) That's God's job, okay? If God wants to make them miserable because you've been nice to them when they're mean to you, that's His job. Just wanted to make that clear. I try, Paul says, not that he always succeeds. Sometimes we fail to make our best effort. Because pleasing others sometimes does not seem worth it. I mean, it wasn't my fault. I shouldn't have to put up with that. I don't owe anyone an apology. I had a pastor friend who, he lived next door to someone who was a bit disagreeable and they had kids the same age and this neighbor was always complaining to him that his son had done something to, you know, cause problems with her son. And 
Jim would, my pastor friend Jim would talk to his son and get the story. And whether his son had done anything or not to cause it, he would always go over and apologize. So it didn't cost me anything to apologize. I didn't care. And what it did was it kept the door open with her. The point is that we are to try. We're trying to please to be a consistent, godly influence. And it doesn't mean we compromise or lower our standards or shy away from the truth. We talked about that in Sunday school too, didn't we? But it does mean that we control our tongues and our tempers and we're honest in our dealings and we are caring and considerate and compassionate. It means that we avoid compromising situations and refuse to jump on the bandwagon of gossip or backstabbing or blame laying. It means we follow up when we say we will do something, that we can be counted on to do the right thing even when there is pressure to do otherwise. Pastor, you say that's easy to say, but much harder to do. Amen, I agree. It is a struggle. I struggle. But Paul tells us the real secret to succeeding in this effort. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus Christ. Folks, we take our clues, we get our direction from Jesus. It's as His Holy Spirit works in and through us that we have the power to do the right thing, to make the right choice, to say the right thing, and not do the wrong thing in every situation. So the next point on your outline, a godly life reinforces the Word of God. A godly life opens others to hear the Word of God. A godly life creates advantage. A godly life reinforces the Word of God. A godly life opens others to hear the Word of God. A godly life creates advantage. If we are ever going to be out of favor with non-believers, let it be, be because, like Daniel, we have done the right thing, even though unpopular, and not because we've done the wrong thing. And that, we're seeing that in the church today, are we not? We fall out of favor with non-believers and sometimes others who are believers because of the stance we take on what are critical, scriptural, moral, ethical issues in our country right now. Gene Getz, who, uh, I don't know if he's still doing it or not, he's probably retired by now, he was a, a teacher at Dallas Seminary, and um, he wrote a book called The Walk, and he says this, even though unbelievers may not agree with our belief system, if we are living a Christ-like life, they will in the most part respect our moral, ethical, and gracious lifestyle. This is definitely what happened in Jerusalem when the believers found favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The consistent godliness of these people had an attraction that non-believers could not resist. And that certainly supports the idea that what you do speaks louder than what you say. You know, I can tell you I'm a pilot. 
But until I fly an airplane, you don't have any reason to believe me. You know, when modern run, running shoes came out, uh, you know, Nike and Adidas, and back then it was Onitsuka Tiger. I don't know what it is now. Asics. It's Asics now. You know, I, I, I was, uh, that was during my college years, and I was running uh, cross-country and track. And so when the modern running shoes came out, I was offended when I saw people wearing them around as street shoes. Everybody started wearing running shoes. People who hated running were wearing running shoes. I think that guy couldn't run from the couch to the refrigerator without getting winded, and he's wearing running shoes. You know why I thought that? Because I thought only runners should wear running shoes. But just because you wear running shoes doesn't make you a runner. Christianity is kind of like that. You can say you're a Christian all you want, but if you don't live like one, it means nothing. Anyone can wear a label or shoes. It's living the life that's tough and makes the difference. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So our lives are on display and people are watching and maybe more closely than you think. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, you're right, it is. But you've heard this quote before. It has been said that the only Bible most folks ever read is the daily life of a Christian. And if that is true, I would believe the world needs a revised version. That's what this author says. Our problem is not that too many of us are being ignored. It's that we are all being observed. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Boy, if we could keep that in mind all the time. Giving thanks to God through him, to God the Father. So, is there a business that hates to see you show up? Or a server that cringes when you come, come in because they know it will be hard work with little reward? Or a clerk who tries to hide because they're, they've caught an earful more than once. And I worked for, uh, years ago, I worked at a uh, two-value hardware. And I was the new guy. I remember being at the front counter and this person walked in and everybody disappeared. I found out why. It was one of those people that no one wanted to deal with. Is there a friend who questions your Christianity because when they made a bad choice under peer pressure, you join them instead of standing strong and encouraging them to do the same thing? Have you been seen in places you shouldn't be, doing things you shouldn't do by people who know that you attend church every week and claim to be a Christian? 
Are you the person I would want behind me in a town where I didn't know my way around and was driving slower than the speed limit so I could find the street I was looking for? And we could ask a hundred similar questions. I want to close with this illustration. Two cars are waiting at a stoplight. The light turns green, but the woman in front doesn't notice. A man in the car behind her is watching traffic pass around them. The man begins pounding on the steering wheel, yelling at the woman to move. The woman doesn't move. The man is going ballistic inside his car, ranting and raving at the woman, pounding on his steering wheel and dash. The light turns yellow and the man begins to blow the horn and screams profanity at the woman. The woman looks up, sees the yellow light, accelerates through the intersection just as the light turns red. Ever happened to you? The man is beside himself, screaming in frustration as he misses his chance to get through the intersection. As he is still in mid-rant, he hears a tap on the window and looks up to see a very serious-looking policeman. The policeman tells him to turn off his car while keeping both hands in sight. He complies, speechless at what is happening. As he turns off the engine, the policeman orders him to exit his car with his hands up. He gets out of the car and is ordered to place his hands on the car, at which time he is handcuffed and taken to the police station where he is fingerprinted, photographed, searched, booked, and placed in a cell. Wait a minute, was the lady in front of me? After a couple of hours, a police officer approaches the cell and opens the door. He's escorted back to the booking desk where the original officer is waiting with his personal effects and says, I'm really sorry for the mistake. But you see, when I pulled up behind your car, you were laying on the horn, pounding the steering wheel and cussing a blue streak at the lady in front of you. I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder, the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed that you had stolen the car. <laughs> Does your walk match your talk? Does your do reflect your say? Are we mindful of how our behavior may be impacting those we are supposed to be reaching for Jesus? Pray with me. Lord God, there's probably no one in here who would say that they never struggle in this area of our, their lives. I know I do at times. Which reminds us of how important it is to stay current in our relationship with Jesus and to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us to give us the strength and to remind us, oops, you don't want to say that, you don't want to do that, you don't want to go there. And it would be obedient to the voice of the Spirit, because it would keep us out of a bunch of trouble, and would help us be a much more consistent representative of the Jesus we claim as our Savior. And that through the work of the Holy Spirit, there would then be evident in our lives those Christ-like things of love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and maybe most of all, 
in tense situations, self-control. And that our lives, in a consistent way, would be an advantage to others because we, were, we are drawing them to Jesus through the way we live. And Father, if you brought to mind anything today where we have just blown it, and where maybe we've impacted someone in a negative way because of our behavior, because of the things we've said, or because of our attitude, that, Lord God, we would confess that to you in these moments, that we would repent of that, determine with the help of your Holy Spirit to do differently, to act differently, to say differently, next time we're in a situation like that. Lord, hear us as we pray. Forgive us and help us now to move on in a very Christ-like, faithful, self-controlled, obedient way so that our lives really are a faithful testimony to the work of Christ in us. And I ask these things in the strong name of Jesus who can help us live a godly life every day, in every situation. Amen.